0: Bye. Have a nice walk, Jacob.
1: Have a nice walk, Jacob.
0: Sean says, have a nice walk as well.
1: Okay. Oh, so do I. Um,
0: I'll miss him. The Peter whole time. Peter also says, have a nice walk. No, Peter, I'm also walking. He says he's walking over to your house, Sean. Okay, cool.
1: Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, and I'm joined by my regular co host, rewatcher of the 72 Dolphins, Jeremy Ruggles.
0: Yeah! Perfect season.
1: It was flawless, a season to be remembered forever and immortalized in the Ace Ventura movie. Oh, no. Which has not aged well, I must say. It has not aged well. Oh. Anyway, we're also joined by diehard fan of West Borland's early work, Peter Cook.
2: <laughs> yes, I am a Fred Durst lyrical apologist and really devoted to Big Dumb
1: Face. That's what we appreciate about you. Which is you. Wes
2: Borland's... <laughs> That's, that is a West Borland project, right? Yeah. <laughs> How did I know say that?
0: Say yes to Wes.
2: Yeah, say yes to (laughs) Wes.
1: All right, Jeremy, you have got, from what I understand, the very first blues record featured on this podcast and one of the few that you can still find for cheap. Take it away. Very
0: true. I have brought Josh White live at Town Hall. Also, I think the first live album we've done, correct? Yeah, Mm -hmm. I think
2: so. I think you're correct. I don't recall offhand any other live albums.
0: Yeah, we're going right down my alley today as the uh, guy who likes folk a lot and also the guy who loves live records. A lot of people don't like live records. I love them. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they're amazing. And all those little like faults, that's what makes them beautiful, guys. Yeah, that raw energy.
2: You know, as long as it's not one of those live albums where they edit out all of those mistakes and clams. I hate that.
1: Or a it's studio true. album where they add audience noise in between tracks. Oh, like that's the Pepper. worst.
0: <laughs> Alright, let's uh, I'm gonna just throw a track at you right out of the gate. Mm-hmm. What you got? It's called Hard Time Blues.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs>
3: down home about a year ago Things so bad, Lord, my heart was sore And folk had nothing It was a sin and a shame Everybody said hard time was to blame Great God, mighty folks feeling bad Lost everything they ever had Great God, mighty folks feeling bad Lost everything they ever had now the sun was a shining fourteen days and no rain. Hoeing oh, and planting was all in vain. They had hard, hard times, Lord, all around. Meal burnt and crops burned to the ground. Great God mighty folks feeling bad, lost everything they ever had. Great God Almighty, folks feeling bad, lost everything they ever had. They had skinny-looking children's bellies poking out. That old pedigree, without a doubt. And old folk hanging around the cabin door. Ain't seen time this hard before. Great God my folks feeling bad, lost everything they ever had. Great God my folks feeling bad, lost everything they ever had. Then I went to the boss at the commissary store, folks all starving. Please don't close your door. We want more food and a little more time to pay. Boss man left and walked away. Great God, mighty folks feeling bad, lost everything they ever had. Great God, mighty folks What? What year is this record?
0: This record was recorded at a concert in 1961 and came out in 62.
2: Man, that is amazing live recording technique, or uh, what am I trying to say? That's amazing live recording production there. sounds incredible. There's not a lot as far as the instrumentation goes, but it sounds
0: impeccable. Man, I wonder who could make such an impeccable sounding record. Who could that be? Do either of you know already? No. Quincy Jones. Oh, nice.
1: The goat, the man himself.
0: Yeah, actually, on the back of this record, there is like a section devoted to telling you every single microphone that was used on which instrument and like mm. the settings for the Ampex tape recorders. And then it has Quincy Jones signed right underneath
2: go. it. Is there going to be, are, on other tracks, is, are there more instruments than just Josh White and guitar? Are there other players?
0: Yeah, there's uh, sax on some, there's drums, piano, I think that's it.
1: Okay, y- yeah. wait Peter, are you saying that you haven't listened to this record yet? <laughs>
2: Yes, I am admitting to that, Sean, but it's not my fault. This doesn't appear to be on any streaming platforms or on YouTube. I, I couldn't find any versions from this recording that way, so I had to listen to other versions of this, most of the songs.
1: So this is a, uh, an internet exclusive for this album, thanks to the I'd Buy That for a Dollar podcast. True. Yeah.
0: This album is cheap, but I don't know if it's actually that I have my copy, but I don't know how common they are. Can you speak to that, Sean? Josh White
1: records in general are pretty common. I've never really collected any Josh White records, so I couldn't tell you which ones I see more than others. He's just a guy that no one seems to listen to
0: anymore.
2: Where did you find this, Jeremy? Was this your first experience with Josh White?
0: Yes, I actually got this at Sean's recommendation because... Sean knows I'm a folky who's a sucker for lefty union songs and whatnot. And right. so he's like, Here, you want this guy. And I got it. And my first time listening, I really didn't like it. Really? But I came around to it more and more. And I realized like the thing that kind of took me a little getting used to is some of his vocal affectation is. Kinda of like that fifties almost like Buddy Holly sound that he does with his voice. Yeah. Like sure really annoys me. I hate that sound. That might be why I liked it
2: immediately because I love that about Buddy Holly's music.
0: Yeah. Once I got used to it and like could just kind of tone it out, I was like, oh my god, these are really great songs performed extremely well. Are you talking about that kind of ha, 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 that type of stuff? Yeah. It
2: didn't occur to me, but that he totally does have some of that going on now that you say that.
1: I've, I've heard that referred to as a hiccuping style of singing, because, yeah, it almost sounds like they have a speech impediment or can't stop uh, hiccuping while they're trying to sing. I don't know if that's any kind of an official term or not.
0: Yeah, I have no idea. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I've known about Josh White for a long time. I started collecting blues records at an early age. But the first couple of times I'd see his records around and listen to him, it just didn't seem like my thing. It was a little more on the folk side, which is a style of music I've always appreciated or respected, but not actually wanted to collect that much. So I kind of never really bought any Josh White records while still respecting him and recommending his stuff to people I know that are more into the traditional folk sound, like my good buddy, Jeremy Ruggles. That's me.
2: I guess my uh, I, I tend to lean in the more weirdo folk direction i'm sure. sure but i can appreciate this stuff too
0: yeah josh white i think was the like the reason you find him in blues sections but then also not marked up like almost all blues rec- like you're not gonna find hardly any blues records in dollar bins that's uh the price of those have been driven up but i think because of how much folk influence there is in his sound. It makes, he's like, not, I don't know. I feel like he's not celebrated in the blues community, I guess, is what I'm getting at. Right. I would agree. Yeah. He was part of the Piedmont
2: blues tradition, which, as I'll admit, I wasn't familiar with that going into this, but in doing some research, the Piedmont blues tradition, it's also known as East Coast blues or Southeastern blues. And it refers to a fingerpicking guitar style that the uh, melody and rhythm of that is comparable to the ragtime piano style.
0: Far out. I didn't even know that. I just noticed like, oh, he plays like a bluesy, folky guitar style. But I didn't know. Previous to researching this, I had never even heard of Piedmont Blues, honestly.
2: Yeah, it's yeah. new new to me. You know, I always hear of like Delta Blues, obviously. Uh, that's more right. like Mississippi, Deep South. This is more kind of along the, the East Coast. And he's from the Carolinas originally, right?
0: Yep. Greenville, South Carolina.
2: And it, later on, he was more part of the folk revival movement. And I think that's what he's more associated with.
1: Right, because he was a member of the Almanac Singers with uh, some other notable musicians.
2: Like Woody Guthrie and Pete Seeger? Yeah. Yeah.
0: True. <laughs>
1: I don't know if anybody's heard of those boys.
2: <laughs> well, I guess do we, uh, we could get into some of his story, eh? Josh White's story.
0: Yeah, you guys keep hinting at it, so we'll just dive in. I'm going <laughs> to preface this similar to how I did in the Sammy Davis episode. And say, "This dude had so many things happen in his life in his career. I'm not going to hit everything here. I'm not going to like make you guys sit through a three-hour podcast, so I'm gonna brush most of the main stuff, and, you know, if you really like Josh White and want to know more, there's a lot more to know.
1: Do you happen to know if there are any good books or anything about him that people could maybe check out? Because I definitely got the impression, just skimming over his history, that there's a a rich history to be explored here. And I wondered if anybody's done an extra good job
0: of covering that. Um, I read uh, parts of one that was called like Society Blues. Let me make sure that title's right. Yeah, Society Blues. Seemed to be a pretty good book on it. I didn't read the whole thing, so I won't vouch for it entirely. I just read little excerpts here and there, and it seemed very thorough and to get into the nitty gritty of it. So check out Society Blues. And whoever wrote that book, send uh, me a check. Send a check to our P.O. Box.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That's how we do things around here.
0: (laughs) Anyways, Josh White, born in 1914. Greenville, South Carolina. When he was seven years old, his father threw out a white bill collector who showed up in their house, and the bill collector just like spat on their floor. And his dad grabbed him by the collar and like threw him out of the house. And then four cops came back and beat his father brutally and tied him to a horse and dragged him through the city before locking him up, nearly killing him, and then they threw him in a mental institution until he died nine years later. Damn, that's... Yeah, that's
1: where our story begins.
2: Jesus. Yeah, that's more detail than I read in the Wikipedia article. That is brutal.
0: Yeah, they once again, the Wikipedia seems to gloss over the more brutal details starting to see a trend in that. Yeah. But after his father was thrown in the mental institution Josh White left town with a black street singer by the name of Blind Man Arnold and he agreed to send his mother, Josh White's mother back $2 every week and he Would follow this guy around, Blind Man Arnold, and dance and sing and play tambourine with him. And he was so good at it that Blind Man Arnold started renting Josh White out to other blind traveling singers. And they would keep Josh White shoeless and in like ragged clothes because they would get more tips and get like sympathy for this. Young kid in yeah, and he's he's how clothes and shoeless. He's really young at this point, right? Yeah, he left at age eight and continued doing this until age sixteen. They would make him sleep in horse stables and cotton fields, and would feed him like just enough to survive, essentially. And he started playing in recordings with uh, Blind Joe Taggart in Chicago who was treating him pretty much the same way. And the producer of the albums finally threatened Blind Joe Taggart that he was going to report him for indentured servitude unless he started paying Josh White.
2: Yeah, I saw that. I guess Blind Joe Taggart, most of the information available on him, or at least what he was like, is through Josh White. And he was supposed to be a real mean son of a bitch.
0: Yeah, this whole world of traveling singers seemed very exploitive and pretty brutal.
2: And I guess Blind Joe, he, Josh White also called him out saying that he did have partial sight, so he wasn't actually blind. He was just jumping on the blind blues singer bandwagon.
0: Yeah, that was confusing to me reading through because there were so many blind, whatever their names were traveling musicians that it seemed like that can't be possible like it must be yeah like you said kind of a a lot of fraud going on in that realm which makes sense
1: but at the same time if you were a blind person that was you know in the extreme poverty working class like if you couldn't do manual labor to survive you had to figure out something else quick otherwise you were just going to die
0: that also makes sense
1: yep and side note, that producer that you mentioned that was able to get Josh a little bit more fair pay, that was John Hammond, right? Yeah. Yep. Who Is we he mentioned. famous for something? <laughs> well, we just mentioned him in the Chambers Brothers episode.
0: Yeah. Oh, far out.
1: Yeah, he's, he's the guy that got them their Columbia deal, and we talked about how he had uh, been an influential record producer for a lot of slightly more non-traditional acts at the time. Not to try and paint him as some kind of a white savior or anything, but he's an important figure in music history that has been mentioned a couple of times on the show.
2: Yeah, they make a lot of movies about him, like Dances with Wolves and uh, The Last Samurai, the the white intervening figure.
1: Oh, those are all about John Hammond? Cool. Yeah. (laughs) So anyway, Jeremy.
2: So,
0: yeah, Josh White starts getting money, and once he has enough money to go back home, He heads back home to South Carolina to help take care of his mom and help take care of his siblings. Shortly after coming back home, they sent A&R reps to his house there to sign him to a recording contract. They were like, whoa, this dude's too good. Like, you can't just go home and stop doing music. They signed him. Well, they got his mom to sign a contract, billing him as Joshua White, the singing Christian. And then Mm -hmm. they got him to come to New York and get him to start recording secular blues songs under the alter ego Pinewood Tom.
2: Yeah, it seems like a lot of these singers would, depending on how they were being marketed, use different pseudonyms. A lot of these early blues and folk singers.
0: Yeah, and it was also... This was at the time of the race records. Sean, do you know about that as a a record dude? I mean, I've just seen
1: the term referenced. It's it's definitely not a term that people have used in the last, you know, 70, 80 years. But (laughs) you see that as a (laughs) critical term in, uh, you know, the the early days of popular music.
2: The term was coined in 1922 by Oka Records. I think that's how you say it. Okay. I've always heard it
1: pronounced okay. Was it
2: okay? Okay. So... OK records. And so they were records that were marketed towards Black audiences initially. Gradually, white audiences began to purchase such records as well. And the term race record, it seems like in hindsight, it seems derogatory. But in the early 20th century, that was actually race was what the African-American community largely used to denote pride or support for Black people and culture.
1: Yeah, see, I've only seen it referenced in a very negative sense, like we had a, you know, overtly racist term for just all black music, especially any kind of traditional black music. And then, you know, when racism ended with the civil rights movement, according to Wikipedia and other whitewashed uh, news sources, then, you know, we got new terms like rock and roll and soul and everything, which in a lot of ways was just a furthering of the segregated music stylings. Like, if you were white and you played rock music, you were called a rock and roll band, but if you were black doing
0: it, you were a rhythm and blues band.
2: hmm exactly.
0: Yeah, so I I think the discerning factor would be that they were very open about the segregation between the musics in that era From uh, from my understanding from the 1920s through the 1940s. I mean, these were, they basically would have a separate record label name for the black artists and the white artists, and separate marketing mechanisms and even separate factories where the records were made.
2: And they were sold in different
0: spaces too. Yeah. Which, from what I read, also gave rise to like some of the early black business owners. And some of the early black label managers came out of that era as well. Yeah, that's interesting. And they would also take music like that had become popular on either side of the racial wall they had made and re-record it with the corresponding artists. So like if there was a song that was doing well with the black community, they would re-record it with white artists and release it under whatever their white band was that's how i guess they would keep it separate
1: yep yeah there's there's tons of examples of that i mean even with doing a cursory research on josh white so that a lot of his songs have been covered and popularized by people like the Andrews sisters and frank sinatra and things like that
2: yeah yeah like one meatball yep that's the song i when i heard that one i realized that i did know a song by josh white i, I knew his version definitely at some point I had heard that one. I, I love that
0: song. Let's, I want to play another song before we keep digging in too much here. I'm going to do classic blues traditional. I'm sure a lot of our listeners know it House of the Rising Sun.
2: Yes. But it's
0: actually sung by his daughter, Beverly White. And her version of this really floored me when I heard it on this record. So I'm going to play it for you.
1: know this already but the story with that song is it was a track that some blues and folk pioneers such as josh white and Leadbelly had in their repertoire and then a guy by the name of dave van ronk uh, decided that he wanted to record a version of that because he had been playing it regularly and was a standout of his live sets and a very young bob (laughs) dylan approached dave van ronk and said hey do you mind if I record a version of that song that you're always using? And Dave was like, Well, I wish you wouldn't because I'm putting on my next record. Oops. To which Dave said, I kind of already did, and the record's already coming out. Sorry. Yeah, Dylan then, asked
2: after he had already recorded it for Columbia Records, a major label. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Classic Dylan move. So Dave Van Ronk couldn't play the song anymore because every time he would play it after the record came out, people would be like, Oh, it's cool you're doing a Bob Dylan cover. He's <laughs> like, yeah. God damn it. He's covering me. And then when a little group called The Animals covered it, Bob Dylan couldn't play anymore because he started getting the same thing at all of his shows. People were like, oh, you're covering The Animals. That's cool, Bob.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I love hearing Dave Van Ronk tell that story because he feels so justified when Dylan has it stripped away from him as well. Yeah, exactly.
1: (laughs) Which is funny because Dave just stole it from black people. I mean, it's one angle that you could look at that. Also, I got to say that song is just so immensely overplayed that I don't really like it anymore. But that might be the best version I've ever heard of that song. That was amazing.
2: That was out of this world. That was the best Josh White version I've heard of it because he's recorded it with him singing it himself as well as with Libby Holman singing it and him playing guitar. And I liked those versions, but that one just knocked it out of the park.
0: Yeah, that one caught me totally off guard. Similar reasons to Sean. Like I've heard that song a thousand times. I don't need to hear another version of it. But I was actually like, wow, this is great. I need to learn more about Beverly White. Look it up. And there's like nothing about her. She's done almost no musical things outside of... She was on this album. She did an album with uh, Josh White's son, her brother, Josh White Jr. And that's it. And there's little to no information on her out there.
2: Wow. Yeah, I mean, that was... Just really something special. I'm I'm really glad you chose to play that one. Yeah, you'd think, like, who needs to hear another version of House of the Rising Sun? But uh, that one is something really unique and moving. It's nice to be moved by a song that you don't think you can can be moved by anymore.
1: Yeah, definitely.
2: I think this episode is a good opportunity to clarify or elaborate on something we discussed in the Joan Armitrading episode a few episodes back. We talked about how record companies in the 1970s didn't know how to market a black British woman doing folk music to American audiences. And I feel that there is a real tragic irony in that because obviously the American folk tradition is largely informed by African-American spirituals and work songs and black folk artists like Lead Belly and Elizabeth Cotton, artists like that. Black artists made significant strides in developing folk music as listeners and performers now understand folk music. And by the time the 1970s rolled around and Joan Armitrading was recording, folk music, stylistically and commercially, had been co opted, consciously or not, by white artists and producers, while other musical styles loosely rooted in similar traditions like soul and funk had commercially become the new musical black identity largely because there were more black owned and run labels by that point. So there was a lot more agency in the black community, or at least a little bit more agency in the black community of maintaining some level of control over their music. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. and, And it's no accident that a lot of the prominent white early folk musicians, you know, we talked about Woody Guthrie, Pete Seeger, they were collaborating with black artists on a very regular basis because they understood that it was a, a style of music rooted in black tradition.
2: Yeah. And, and Josh White was one of those artists, those black exactly. artists that they were working with.
0: Yeah. And Josh White, I think part of the reason he's not in like blues, what's the word for it, like history is I feel like he's been pushed out because of his folkiness because people view folk as like a white music the people who are doing the researching and the blues collecting now have this view of folk music as white music and see josh white as someone who was trying to like garner a white audience
1: yeah it's it's weird how Most blues fans these days either want that like really obnoxious electric blues or the like really tragic sad blues kind of thing. There doesn't seem to be any room for anything in between.
2: And he seems to have a lot of social commentary in his music. Yes. Oh, yeah.
0: Yeah. He was doing protest music at the same time as like Woody Guthrie and some of these other folks doing it but he was black and in much more danger to be singing the kinds of songs he was singing
1: well i don't i think i read this right when i was doing the research but one of his protest songs frank sinatra covered and then was in a movie based on the song and won a grammy for it yeah so it's like the same thing of like white people are celebrated when they talk about human rights but black people are seen as like subversive and controversial
2: Yeah, didn't he work with Lead Belly? We talked about Lead Belly. Oh, we'll
0: get there. We'll get there. (laughs) Let me jump back into the timeline and get us there, though, real quick. There's a few important things to jump on here. In 1936, he cut his hand up real bad in a bar fight. He got gangrene in the hand, and the doctors all wanted to amputate it, and he kept refusing, said, no, I'm not going to amputate it and that hand became like virtually useless and immobile for years after that he was exercising it and doing all kinds of stuff trying to get it working again but he could not play guitar and was not performing basically ended his music career at that point and was being like a dock worker and working kind of more menial jobs but then suddenly in 1938 when he was playing poker his hand just started working again
2: oh man i would have loved to have been around the poker table that night that was probably a miraculous night
0: yeah yeah that must have been an insane celebration
1: <laughs> royal flush also i can play guitar again i'm <laughs> out <Ow. laughs>
0: and this coincidentally happened 1938 and there there's some producers in broadway working on a play, John Henry, and they keep trying out people and it's not working, so they start listening to a bunch of race records and trying to narrow it down and they decide, or they narrowed it down to this guy they were listening to, Pinewood Tom, and Mm -hmm. this other one, Josh White, the Singing Christian.
1: It's
2: the same
0: person. And it's the same person. Yeah, we've either got to have Josh White or Josh White. (laughs) So they brought him onto the play. The play was a a fairly big success, but most importantly, it put Josh White in contact with Lead Belly, Woody Guthrie, Burl Ives, and very importantly, Alan Lomax.
4: Mm -hmm.
2: The younger Lomax.
0: The younger Lomax.
2: Son of John Lomax.
0: I don't know who John Lomax is, should I?
2: I mean, he was Alan Lomax's father, and together they went around documenting folk artists. Uh, And I don't know when John died. I mean, Alan's name is better known of the two, but it was a father-son effort. Yeah,
0: i known Alan.
2: Yeah, I I didn't really know John's name until I did an intensive research paper on Lead Belly in college.
0: Uh, So... Josh's White Star is rising. He starts performing in the first interracial duo with singer Libby Holman. Mm -hmm. And they start performing in venues that were previously segregated. So he's right at the, the leading edge of trying to end segregation very actively in the places he's performing and with who he's performing with.
2: She was a pretty radical figure herself. I don't know if you looked into her at all, but... um,
0: I only read the tiniest amount. What do you got, Peter?
2: Oh, I don't know. I know that (laughs) there was a a lot that surrounded her life. I didn't have anything prepared necessarily, but I know that she was... I think she was openly bisexual at the time. And at some point, also was accused of murdering her husband, or was suspected of having murdered her husband.
0: Yeah, that was the only thing I saw. From what I understand,
1: openly queer musicians in the early folk and blues and gospel culture was much more common than the history books will tell you nowadays. Really? Yeah, I know that uh, Sister Rosetta Tharp was openly bisexual, and a few other people who I'm forgetting the names of, but that's... Definitely something that was intentionally whitewashed and
0: buried over the years. Interesting. Where was I? I'm sorry. Sorry, we derailed I lost my you there. Notes here. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Libby Holman is a great. She is a great singer, though. I really liked the few recordings that they did together that I was able to find.
0: Yeah, I listened to a couple of the songs. I didn't. Something about that, like crazy vibrato she uses, that was popular in that era, was uh, another one of those kind of vocal techniques that annoys me a lot
2: yeah it reminded me a little of Odetta yeah a white Odetta
1: Ooh, we could probably cover an Odetta record on this show at some point That'd be that would cool. be that. would be dope oh, I, was,
0: I was planning on it I didn't think her records are very cheap though are they
1: um, I found them cheap occasionally I'm sure we could figure out an angle on one of her records anyway right. we'll work on that
0: anyway <laughs> Eleanor Roosevelt heard of her No. Mm, Yeah, sounds familiar. Is she related to John Hammond? (laughs) She's not related to John Hammond, by blood at least. Teddy Roosevelt? (laughs) No. First Lady. FDR's wife.
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, that one. Okay, okay. Yeah,
0: she was mad into folk music and really liked Josh White and invited him to play FDR's inauguration in 1940. During this time, they also initiated a draft where Josh White's brother was drafted into the army, and Josh White saw firsthand how badly the segregated black soldiers were treated compared to the white soldiers. I mean, they had, like, barracks for the white soldiers, and they would make the black soldiers sleep in tents, like, at the training grounds, amongst numerous other Mistreatment. So he was trying to push for desegregation in the military. They also wouldn't allow black workers into factories that had war contracts. So the good paying factory jobs were not being offered to people if they were black. Not surprising. Eventually, they did... I would say, at least partially credited to Josh White, who was pushing for these things. They did end the segregation of war contracts, though the War Department fought FDR on the desegregation of the military, saying that the military is no place for social experimentation. But FDR, later on, heard Josh White's album southern exposure and he was so blown away by it which fdr was not into folk music i learned that he was a sea shanty man himself
2: (laughs) (laughs) oh yeah naturally that's what i would have pictured
0: dude loves sea shanties but he heard josh white's album and invited him to the white house for doing a private performance and then he talked to Josh White for several hours afterwards, and they became friends. And the Roosevelts would have the White family over for like Christmas and Thanksgiving and stuff. Wow,
2: this is uh, during the uh, World War II.
0: Yeah, this would have been like Josh White's initial heyday, I would say. He was making records with uh, Almanac Singers, as you said putting out his own stuff that was doing very well.
2: Yeah, and I guess he really would have probably, he was probably only like, I don't know, 25 or so by this point in time since he had started so young. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, in
0: 1947, I saw he starred in Dreams That Money Can Buy, which was an early film by Hans Richter, Max Ernst, Marcel Duchamp, and a bunch of other Dada artists. Yeah, yeah, Duchamp. Yeah. So if you're looking for a research rabbit hole listener to get into, read up on the Dadaists. That's a fascinating art movement to learn about.
2: Yeah. I did a little studying of Berlin Dada in college because it started in Switzerland, I think. The Dada movement.
0: Yeah, Yeah. It was primarily a European art movement. Which makes this even more interesting to me because I don't think of, you know, folk blues music. I see that almost in contrast to Dadaism.
2: Yeah, although some, you know, something I meant to point out about that rendition of House of the Rising Sun was there was a little bit of dissonance in White's playing on that that was an added ingredient that I really appreciated.
0: Yeah, and I suppose there's, parallel social messages to those things. I just imagine folk and blues being very rooted in realism and plainly telling the reality of what's going on instead of artistically celebrating the absurdity of it.
2: Yeah, well I think with data you're almost trying to make people like annoy people or make them uncomfortable to the point that they like question their surroundings and their environment
1: which there's definitely plenty of folk records that are leaning heavier into that concept but it's it's you don't find it in any kind of traditional folk
0: stylings usually. Mhm. I'm going to play another jam um, before we Perfect time for that. Cruise further into this.
2: What do you got next?
0: I want to play This one is actually sung by his son Josh White Jr. but he's playing a Woody Guthrie classic pastures of plenty. Oh, mm-hmm.
5: Poor feet have traveled that hot dusty road from out of your dust bowl and westward. We rode your desert, was hot, and your mouth. So cold California Arizona I've worked on Your crops Then it's North Up to Oregon to harvest your hops, dig the beads from your ground, the grapes off your vine.
2: Straight ahead strumming, kind of raw. That's really different than a lot of the other tracks I've listened to of his so far, as far as guitar style. That wasn't something I was expecting. It's really like raw folk right there.
0: Yeah, I wonder if Josh White Jr. is a guitar player himself. It's not clear on the record as to whether maybe that might be Josh White Jr. actually playing guitar there.
2: Okay, yeah, That it, is it's,
0: not his style. Yeah,
2: that really jumped out at me, so that that might explain things. I, I guess we're not certain. But, I mean, I liked it. I, I enjoyed it, but it was definitely if this was recorded in nineteen sixty one it it sounded a a lot more what uh, folk artists doing later in the decade were doing.
1: yeah so Josh White Jr. would have been twenty one at the time of recording that, so it's and it, it says that he. Officially made his professional debut at the age of four singing with his dad. So it very well could have been him playing guitar at that point. Cause he is, he's now 79 years old and still relatively active performing and recording music. Oh, nice. And I also saw that in the early eighties, he starred in a stage biography of his father's life, which is pretty interesting. I wonder if there's any recorded evidence of that anywhere. I liked the bass in there, too. Boom, boom, boom,
0: boom. Yeah, it was nice. Nice bass. Well, let's, uh... I'll round the corner on this biography, because sadly we're almost to the end of it. Because his star rose. He was big. He was one of the early black artists that was appealing to large amounts of white audiences as well. But come 1950, we get Truman, and we get, uh... The McCarthyites, and Josh White is put on the blacklist. He is labeled a commie and told in Hollywood and TV studios that they're not supposed to show him on TV. His album sales plummet. Hugh went after him? Yeah. The Red Scare? Yep. Not only that, they also, so he at this point moves to London and continues to perform in Europe where he can still perform and not be taken out of the spotlight, essentially. When he comes back to America, they detain him and questioned him for six, the FBI detained and questioned him for six hours. Some people believe they may have threatened him with information they had on him, but essentially they wanted him to go in front of HUAC, the uh, un-American committee or whatever, and denounce something that they claim Paul Robeson, who was also in the John Henry play that Josh White was in, They claimed that Paul Robeson had said the American Negro would never fight the Soviet Union and this would have been right when the Korean War was starting. So they wanted Josh White to go in front of HUAC and say that that's a horrible statement and that he believes he would fight for America and that Paul Robeson's a commie and all that. And Josh White does not Really, say that to the committee, though there's like one line where he says, like, he would go fight for America. And the media naturally just latched onto that one line, ignored all the rest of his statement and all the liberal sentiments within it. And he was painted as basically someone who narked on Robeson. And as a result, though, he was not even removed from the blacklist. So he was essentially pushed away by the left for making these statements and then was also still blacklisted.
2: Yeah, for our listeners, if you're not familiar with HUAC, it was the House Un American Activities Committee that was created. I think it was, I want to say, like 1938 or 1939 during the Red Scare it was created to investigate like alleged disloyalty or subversive activities on the part of private citizens, public employees, and like organizations that were suspected of having fascist or communist ties, and there were a lot of people in like Hollywood that got put on it, blacklisted as a result of
0: HUAC. Yeah. And like Alan Lomax, Woody Guthrie, all those dudes were on it too. Yeah.
2: Anyone suspected of thinking outside of the box and <laughs> pushing that agenda out there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it led to a lot of great artists being basically ruined and oftentimes driven to an untimely death as a result of their career and reputation being destroyed overnight. Yeah. And also, it needs to be said that the whole angle of Josh White narking on Paul Robeson was not true because. Josh went and like had a private meeting with Paul Robeson the night before making the statement and read Paul, his entire planned statement. Uh, They, they had the meeting in their bathroom with all the water running because Paul knew that his house was tapped by the FBI and it was the only way they could actually have a private conversation about Mm. this topic.
0: Wow. Basically, Josh White said as much as he thought he was being required to say and I mean, he wasn't narking at all at any point. They just took like the one thing they wanted out of context, plastered it all over the newspapers and ruined his career, essentially. Right. Because the Paul Robeson quote was taken out of context anyway, and
1: has since been proven to be not even what he was trying to say in that statement. And that's part of what Josh White was saying. Like, If that is what Paul Robeson said, I stand against that and here's why. But then, of course, they just took it as, like, well, he confirmed that Paul Robeson is a commie that is, like, anti-American and condemned him, but he's also still a communist, so just fuck all of them.
0: Yeah, they used him and uh, threw him out. I don't know if it's attributable to that or, you know, growing up shoeless and nutritionally deficient as a child, but he spent a lot of the 50s dealing with health conditions. He... Had bad ulcers. He had severe psoriasis, chronic calcium deficiency, and emphysema that he was struggling with. And this all led to his first heart attack in 1961. Well, the same year as this record. Yeah. The and all those things would record. definitely
1: be conditions ag- aggravated by stress, which is
0: what he was dealing with at that point. So, yeah. So that was the year he recorded this record. And kind of the early 60s, there was a folk revival of sorts happening that he sort of rode that wave back into the public consciousness through the early and mid 60s, kind of starting with this record really. But you can tell by how many of the tracks on here that his son and his daughter are on, that he's not 100% health wise. He's not running these shows himself anymore. This was on Mercury Records, correct? True. Okay. So pretty
2: major label. He's he's still working with the majors at this point.
0: Yeah, this came out on Mercury Records. Uh previous to this, he started putting out records with Electra, who Jack Holtzman, who started Electra Records, signed him early on and essentially broke the McCarthyite blacklisting by giving him a deal. Josh White was a big success for Elektra Records and launched them into being able to sign more folk artists and later on a lot of the early rock artists like The Stooges, MC5, The Doors, Love, Tim Buckley, Bread, None of that would have happened if it weren't for Josh White's John Henry album selling as many copies with Elektra as it did.
2: Wow. Unsung hero there in many regards, <laughs> but, th- yeah. but that's major too.
0: Yeah. And it created a place for uh, a lot of other folk artists, you were saying, right, Sean?
1: Yeah. It's, it's like. Uh, a lot of early hit records were by artists like Theodore Bickell, Judy
0: Collins, Phil Oaks, Tom Paxton. Yeah, so Josh White, essentially, they used his name and fame that he had garnered previous to the blacklisting and were able to tap into that to launch their label, essentially. That's major. Yeah, and in 63, JFK broke the TV blacklisting finally by having Josh White perform on a CBS civil rights special. that was like a uh, concert that civil rights activists and musicians were playing at. And then in 1965, guess where he plays?
1: Mm. Uh, would that be the Newport Folk Festival? Yeah, Count- we mentioned oh, wow. it last
0: week. <laughs> Also there with the Chambers brothers was Josh White. Not playing with the Chambers brothers, obviously.
1: That would have been a legendary collab, though.
0: True. That would have been far. Actually, it probably would have been amazing if they did some gospel stuff. Oh, my God. Yeah, it would have been
1: crazy.
2: I wonder if there's documentation of Josh White's
0: performance from that.
1: I think a lot of the performances that weekend were recorded because there's a Newport 65 album that came out, but I don't know if the stuff that didn't make the album cut has been preserved in any way.
2: Hopefully have to look into it.
1: Interesting. You said that JFK
2: was involved with, uh, you know, in front of the cameras as doing something progressive. It's weird how behind the scenes he was so different as we discussed yeah. in
0: previous <laughs> episodes. Like, yeah. It was Sammy Davis
2: hmm. I mean, that was just that was just so wrong on so many levels. And, and I hear more and more stuff about JFK along those lines. Uh,
0: yeah, he was more a product of his time than a visionary away from it, in my humble opinion.
2: Yeah, I mean, I've seen him express admiration for things Hitler did, but that's a different podcast.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Full JFK takedown on this podcast, eh, boys? <laughs> i'm ready for it It's
2: gonna come come back for us i'm gonna <laughs> team up with jimmy
0: page and phil Spector. <laughs> oh no and uh <laughs> who is the guy last week
2: yeah who did we take down the... last week
1: oh uh the uh the owner of um columbia records oh yeah, uh shoot. clive davis clive davis yeah, yeah. oh yeah
2: He's he's got it in for I'd buy that for a dollar for sure. Yeah, we're we're Oof.
1: taking we're taking down notable white men one episode at a time here, <laughs>
0: setting the record yeah, straight. Scooby Doo us guys. <laughs> <laughs> well, that brings us pretty much to the end of the story. He played LBJ's inauguration, and then in 1969, he died during heart surgery. He had three heart attacks. They were trying to do a valve surgery, and it did not work. So he passed away at the age of 54.
2: He really seems to have packed a lot in, though. It seems like there's a lot of material to dive into with this guy, and why haven't I really heard of him before?
0: I mean... Yeah. He went from literally being shoeless on the streets to playing two presidential inaugurations, so...
2: Now, I'm guessing, Jeremy, since... uh, you didn't want to focus heavily on Sammy Davis's filmography and his acting ventures. I'm guessing that you didn't go into great depth with, uh, Josh White's thespian turns, but it seems that he did act in a number of things, you know, stage and, uh, in film, correct?
1: Yeah. And even his Wikipedia page states that it's, Commonly accepted that he would have been a much bigger film star if it wasn't for the McCarthyism. He was a rising star and seemed poised to take Hollywood by storm at that point.
0: Yeah, he was, he was seen as like a sex symbol. Yeah. He popularized playing with his top two buttons undone and yeah. was seen as, a, you know, the ladies thought he was a hottie.
2: I'm guessing he was probably one of the first, or if not the very first, like, uh, black male sex symbol.
1: There was also a lot of, uh, you know, tabloid controversy that some very influential, famous white women had affairs with him. Nothing notable seems to have been proven, but it's also rumored that that had a lot to do with him being a special target of McCarthyism, not just his humanitarian efforts and protest songs, but the fact that he was seemed to be a black person that white women really like to have sex with.
2: Josh White gets it out. hmm
0: Yeah, I saw that some people believed the FBI knew about that and was using it to force him into making those statements that he made. Right. But I don't it's I don't know any of that for sure.
1: Yeah, nothing's been proven, but it definitely doesn't seem out of the question by any means. Dude's a hottie. True. Hell yeah.
2: Well, is that, is that all we have for this episode? Or do we got any, uh, any similar artists we want to
0: I think it's recommend? time we unplug the open sign, lock up the front door. <laughs> count down the register. Count down the register and close up shop. Sweep the floor. Sweep the floor for this week.
1: Have one last shifty with the boys and then uh, go home to the wife and kids. Am I right? You got it, partner.
2: <laughs> I don't know what just happened. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Recommended artist, uh, Paul Robeson, is definitely top of the list. Similar styles, similar career trajectory, and uh incredible musician whose records are very underpriced, usually.
2: And the in- inventor of robo-tripping?
1: Uh, yeah, probably.
0: <laughs> Inaccurate.
2: <laughs> okay. Okay, we'll we'll draw the line there. That was inaccurate,
0: inappropriate. (laughs) Maybe would Cisco Houston count? That feels maybe in that vein.
1: Yeah, he is one of the legendary folk guys that is often underpriced, it would seem. Another blues duo that I more commonly find is Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee. Uh, some of the the only authentic blues and a lot of folk blues stuff as well. That is just as good as everything else, but is still cheap for some unknown reason. I'm sure we'll find out on a
0: later podcast.
1: I'm sure we could get one of their, one of their records on here. That'd be awesome. And those guys also recorded with, uh, Woody Guthrie as well.
0: Nice. Well, Sean, you want to turn the light off?
1: I think it's about that time, Jeremiah.
0: Go ahead. Say the words, Sean.
1: Well, thank you one and all for spending a little time with us here, and I'd buy that for a dollar. We hope to be with you again next week.
0: I'm Jeremy Ruggles.
1: I'm Peter Cook.
0: And I'm Sean Hartman.
2: We'll see you upside down next week.
0: Oh, foreshadowing. I'm going to leave you all with what you're going to do. I'm going to listen to this song. Bye. Josh White.
3: What you gonna do when you meet Gibbs out, my baby? What you gonna do when you meet Gibbs out, my honey? What you gonna do when you meet Gibbs out, stand around the corner, my.
1: Thanks for listening to another quality episode of I'd Buy That for a Dollar. We would like to just gently remind you that if you enjoyed this, please like and subscribe. You, know, you can find us on Instagram, on Facebook, and this podcast is available at pretty much any streaming service that you might normally find podcasts. Just hit that subscribe button and you'll get those notifications every Tuesday when we drop a new episode. And if you could find it in your heart to tell a friend, spread the word a little bit, keep that organic growth going for us so that you know we'll keep making these amazing episodes for you. Thanks for listening. See you next week.
3: Slats in the bed go blam to blam in the morning. Slats in the bed go blam to blam in the evening. Slats in the bed go blam to blam, but I'll go and sleep and I can't keep it down sometimes. What you gonna do when your man gives out, my baby? What you gonna do when your man gives out, my honey? First I'll grab my money and kick him off.